Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. I'm your host, Michael Lerner. Join us now for a conversation with Paul Gorman, Executive Director of the National Religious Partnership on the Environment. Paul Gorman, welcome to the New School. Hi, it's great to be here, Michael. Paul, you're the executive director of the National Religious Partnership for the Environment. Uh, You have been since 1993. And uh, the partnership has played a really extraordinary role in bringing uh, the faith community to environmental issues, particularly the issue of climate change. Recently, uh, Pope Benedict XVI uh, really endorsed... uh, the environment as a critical issue for Catholics at a level that uh, the Catholic Church never has done before. And I wanted to ask you at the start, uh, what role did you and the partnership play in this movement uh, of the whole faith community uh, as symbolized by Pope Benedict's uh, endorsement of the environment as a critical Catholic issue? Uh, in the uh, decades uh, running up to this? Um, Pope, I said. No. <laughs> Actually, um, there's a... There's a there's the, the first um, environment and Pope story is that in... Oh, this is a California story, too. Um, that in, I think, 19... 95 or 1996, we had helped to convene a visit by his all-holiness. We're not just talking about his holiness here, but his all-holiness, the ecumenical patriarch of uh, Greek Orthodoxy. And there was a kind of an exciting side conversation on the way up from Los Angeles to Santa Barbara of whether or not his all-holiness was going to use the S-word. And the S-word was actually sin. Would his all-holiness, who had been discussing this and his staff at some length as to what it would mean to use the S-word and for an Orthodox prelate, using the word sin is not a casual matter, but did he, he reach a point of personal passion and theological confidence to say, as he did go on to say, um, that environmental degradation was a sin, which may not make a big deal to those people who don't use the S word themselves, um, but for those who take it seriously, was a kind of a step. Um, at this meeting, uh, Carl Pope, the head of the... Um, Sierra Club, uh, gave a speech after his All Holiness, saying that the environmental movement had um, created a sin himself by ignoring the role that the religious community and religious thought could play on behalf of environmentalism. At which point I leaned over to the Associated Press reporter and said, I have a headline for your story, Pope Repents. <laughs> now, this was Carl Pope, not the Pope, but it was a start. Um, and in fact, over the years, John Paul, uh, the previous Pope, had 
been quite um, quite outspoken on environmental questions, um, but in you know in the, in the integrating them really into his own um, sort of naturalist uh, pastoral. Uh, theology. I mean, here was a guy who grew up with, in a close relationship um, with nature in Poland, and it was um, you know, it was part of his um, ongoing message. I would have thought. And those of us who paid attention to the Pope's statement noticed that. And in fact, uh, uh, in 1990, in so-called a World Day of Peace message, read from. Um, the balcony over um, over the square at the Vatican. He first quite formally designated environmentalism as a moral issue, and went on to spell what that meant. So, in in a, in a certain sense, this was um, you know a very very significant statement as to when when popes sort of issue quote unquote authoritative teaching statements that enables, instructs, encourages, inspires others in the Catholic community to um, take such a step. Um, so when um, Benedict was elected, um, and he was elected as, um, you know, clearly as a theological and otherwise conservative, and um, many were concerned or troubled by this, there was a real question about whether he would sort of continue in John Paul's um, sort of lineage and example. And I should say to people listening now that um, whatever disagreements people may have about uh, the Catholic Church and so forth, its, its witness, its significance as a moral force, certainly as we've seen on issues of peace, um, is not insignificant. Um, so as it happened... Um, I one one morning early in the morning I um, was listening to NPR and the magnificent uh, Sylvia Poggioli. If any of you, you Michael, who listen to NPR, yes, know, I, I know her well. Right, know her as a of, of the great uh, Italian correspondent, and she seemed to have murmuring something about the Pope, who was that day being installed, and I thought he. I thought she was reporting that he said something about environment. And now, was this Paul or Benedict? This was Benedict. This Benedict, was the day that okay. Benedict was formally yeah. installed. Yeah. This is a long, tedious story, but we're talking about a long, tedious institution. <laughs> right. uh, and um, so I thought, I thought she said something about it, and I got up and from the radio and went to my computer, and I here's going to be a great sentence. I Googled the Vatican. Right. This is something I never would have thought I would do, you know, when I was younger, not understanding Google or the Vatican. And I looked at um, the text of his installation, and within two paragraphs, he wrote the following. The external deserts in the world are growing because the internal deserts have become so vast. Oh, that's beautiful. Therefore... The earth's treasures no longer serve to build God's garden for all to live in, but they have been made to serve the powers of exploitation and destruction. Oh. 
So not more than several minutes into this papacy, that point was made. Now, jump ahead for um, a couple of years. Um, we had known that, I mean, the Catholic community generally, and very much in the United States, has related to climate change uh, fundamentally as an issue of justice, environment generally, an issue of justice given its impact on the poor. So there was both a kind of a theological and political um, imperative to be taking, you know, this seriously. And um, it was really in the last three or four months that um, Benedict began to make a number of more formal statements and, among other things, bring, bring it about... We could use the biblical sentence. It came to pass that the Vatican became the first European state to be carbon neutral, mm-hmm. which, in fact, um, it now is. But more deeply, he spoke about you know the sort of imperative of addressing this issue and used very dramatic um, you know language to. So this is this is an extraordinary historical development, is it not? Yeah, yeah, I think. And uh, in in also in 1990, going back to Pope John Paul II's uh, 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 message on uh, the World Day of Peace on the ecological crisis, that was about the time that you were beginning to create create the National Religious Partnership on the Environment. It's true. Um, these were the kind of golden green years of what I would call the Earth Day generation. Keep in mind that it was between, well, if you actually look to 1992, that was the year in which, of course, there was the first great Earth Summit in Rio. Um, and this was the time when um, Al Gore was designated to be vice president. It was a very ascendant time in the United States for the environmental idea. Um, but in a certain sense, what, what I and we started to do at that time was really to ask the question, um, you know, variously, if you were exasperated, you know, you would say, where, is, where has organized religion been on environment anyway? Um, does spirit have anything to do with nature? Does uh, faith have anything to do with creation? Um, does the witness that the churches have played um, on issues of war and peace and human rights and social justice, you know, and the way in which those religious perspectives have informed, infused social movements, how come this is not happening with uh, environmentalism? And it really wasn't. So take us back to who you were uh, when you began the National Religious Partnership. You were a graduate of Yale and Oxford. You'd worked uh, in the U.S. Congress in the 60s organizing a congressional delegation to Selma, Alabama, and on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, organizing the hearings on Vietnam, 
you were vice president for program at the great uh, Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York. Uh, you'd written a book with Ramdas in 1984 called How Can I Help? Uh, you'd been a press secretary for uh, Senator Eugene McCarthy in his presidential campaign. So you, Paul Gorman, were um, not coming to this uh, sort of out of the blue or empty-handed. Uh, in fact, as you began this, you were a vice president for program uh, at uh, the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. Is that correct? Well, I've, I've just written in big letters on my desk the word moi, question mark. <laughs> um, I was also uh, a kid who learned about ecology from playing stickball on the streets of New York City, but we'll get into that. Right. I mean, I, yeah. You know, um, well, there's a, um, a way to answer that personal question more um, collectively. Uh, I mean, I, I, like many, had been stirred by environmental concerns far earlier. The first I ever thought of it, actually, was when you mentioned the Senate Foreign Relations Committee on Vietnam. Um, I, I was asked when I was on that staff to see um, what turned out as he walked into my office to be a cute little Buddhist monk from Vietnam who sat down and talked to me about the effects of war on land and culture. Thich Nhat Hanh. It was Thich Nhat Hanh. Amazing. Exact. And it was through my association with Dr. King that um, the people who were working with, with Dr. King you know, introduced me. And that was the first time I particularly because it was expressed with such spiritual authority as, as he has. We can't let that go by. What was your association with uh, Martin Luther King? Oh, only, well, only that I had helped um, organize the congressional delegation to Selma, and in that capacity had, I wouldn't, an association is too strong. I mean, it was, it was, what, you know, faithful servant of the civil rights movement right. from albeit from my own um, station wherever it was and um, you know a presence in my life a witness you know what a a, um, a prophetic uh, angel of my conscience I don't know something like that but you were closely connected with those who were going down for Mississippi Summer and things like yeah, that. I, yeah, as well. Paul Cowan, many others. That's true. And and um, <clears throat> the first political convention I ever went to was in 1964, on, where I went down to work on behalf of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party that was challenging the credentials of the Mississippi Not-So-Democratic Party. And I was covering that as a cub reporter for the Washington Post. So. Well, is that true? Yes. You yeah. know. So you were that guy over oh. there, right? <laughs> smart-looking Harvard boy. You know? um, anyway, the, the you're asking about origins. A, a, a good story is um, I am during the summer having a you know a quiet, restful month in a little mountain cabin with my wife and daughter, and actually at the moment in which I was reading a draft of Tom Berry's Dream of the Earth um, before it had been published, and I knew Tom, or Thomas, um, through the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, where I was working. I received, uh, I was reading a draft of that astonishing book, still, 
and went to pick up the mail and found an envelope addressed from HRH Prince Philip, uh, you know, Balmoral uh, Castle or wherever, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So here is a letter from Prince Philip, um, the husband of the Queen, and inside is an invitation to go to the 25th anniversary celebration of um, the World Wildlife Fund in Assisi, of all places. And it was the insight in 1985, this was, I guess, um, or six, of Prince Philip that there was a connection between religion and conservation, as he called it, and that WWF should celebrate its 25th anniversary in that great city of the patron saint of ecology. That's World Wildlife Fund. Sorry? Yeah, the World Wildlife Fund. Sorry. Um, this was not all that popular with the World Wildlife Fund staff, who were not that deeply connected to St. Francis. But uh, Prince Philip said, I am the prince, and we're going to Assisi. And there was for five days, I'll, I'll try and save details, an extraordinary celebration where the world's major religious communities were represented, and there were pilgrims from a kind of Chernobyl generation, of European environmentalists who came to the city through the great gates on the final day, and declarations were read um, from the balcony of the Basilica of St. Francis um, with a great MGM biblical movie sky, you know, in the back with lightning and thunder, really. And for many of us, that was a prophetic, powerful event. And it was actually in the little church of San Damiano, just outside of Assisi, where, where St. Francis gets the instructions, go and build my church, that I think I really had the first intimation that this was something that was really going to be important to me. And what was that moment like for you? What were you doing when that sense oh, came to you? Oh, Michael. Uh, well, I was praying. Uh-huh. <laughs> Give us a visual image of the yeah. church. The, the, it, it, I'm glad you have some time because it's a nice picture. San Damiano is a very small little church, almost a monastery. It was there that St. Francis actually, this is a Christian reference, but receives the stigmata in his own hands that his relationship to God and Christ is so great and his service is so great that Christ's wounds appear on his hands. And it is there where he prays for direction um, for his own journey. And here's the words, go and build my church, which he takes to be an instruction, first of all, to you know put some bricks on top of each other. Turns out to be more complicated. <laughs> but another, a little, so that's his house. And there is another part of it, which is uh, dedicated to... Can I go on with this? Yes, absolutely. In fact, I think I've seen a photograph of you sitting in that church, doesn't it? Oh, man. Well, um, that must have been from my my FBI file. (laughs) Um, But it was there... St. Francis' example had a huge impact on the classy young women of Assisi, such that the classiest of them, whose name was Claire, came out to, to go into voluntary poverty and join his order. And when all her brothers and sisters and fathers and so forth came after her to take her back to town, 
she famously stood by the altar held and held the altar cloth, which is a a statement of sanctuary, and nobody can touch her. And she um, remained there and started the order of so-called poor Clares. And there's a little room right near next to where I was praying, which is St. Clare's cell, I suppose, and has the names of the original sisters with these super Italian names. One of them could have been Sylvia, I suppose, but it wasn't. I was like Anastasia and Anata and Anna, you know, who are the original nuns in the, we're talking about the 12th, 13th century. So it's a little, little um, church with these little rooms. And I, and with Jim Morton, the dean of, of the cathedral, a great friend of yours, um, just stayed there for about three hours. And I suppose it was, you know, meditation, and one's head was bowed, and one is sitting in a little wooden stall. And, um, you know, this is a kind of a space that has been consecrated by many beings. Um, so I, I, I would say that the idea of whatever this turned out to be came there, not least because two months later, my first job at the cathedral was we were just inaugurating the St. Francis Day celebration, Blessing of the Animals, which some people have seen, but in New York that involved at the cathedral. It was my first job at the cathedral was to book the beasts. <laughs> that is to say, get the animals that we would bring down the aisle. So for those who haven't seen this, because... Uh, you must describe it. I've been to the cathedral often uh, for these uh, incredible St. Francis days. And imagine uh, a, a great, probably one of the biggest cathedrals in the world, it's isn't the, it? It's the biggest cathedral right. in the world. So the, the Statue of Liberty can fit underneath its roof. Right, and it's up at a hundred and what street? Tenth through twelfth. Yeah, 110th and 12th, right at the sort of historic dividing line between the white and black communities in New York. And here, uh, uh, the Reverend James Morton uh, and Paul Gorman and others uh, really undertook a, a revolution in what this Episcopal cathedral was like, really reaching out to the uh, poor communities uh, to the north and also began this extraordinary uh, commitment to the environment that included the the uh, uh, St. Francis Day. So, in any case, on uh, on this day, uh, the cathedral is packed. This vast uh, space, the great doors open, and down the aisle come this uh, series of people and their animals, ranging from people carrying. A cockroach or an ant colony. That came uh, that came several years later, but I'll tell you that's <laughs> right. But anyway, very... ranging from those up to including an elephant. So it's a, a, a and and the most extraordinary fact is that uh, all these animals managed to come in and be blessed uh, without complete uh, animal human chaos taking place. There's a a power to the the moment that enables the animals and the people to be there. It's really an extraordinary Well, you communion. really named it, and I'll underscore it because for, you know, people listening, um, this is as good a kind of a symbolic moment of, of our work. Um, 
we all had wondered what indeed would happen when we opened these two-ton bronze doors and in came, led by llama, um, elephant, you know, fresh from a performance of Aida in Detroit. <laughs> but we don't say that. Um, and llama and camel and hawk and, you know, what indeed would happen when they began to proceed down the aisle. You know, stampede or flashbulbs or... or uh, defecation or and in fact what happened then as it does every year was the place went silent and there were more than a few people myself included you know coming up to or with tears and I remember as I watched this happening and noticed the silence and the tears saying to myself what are these tears, which is to say, who closed the door on them in the first place? Mm. Um, what does it mean that it should be so powerful that we should greet their entrance? It should be so stirring. What kind of reconciliation, what kind of prodigal species or, you know, reuniting, what image of the connection between know, faith and nature that had indeed been ruptured and that had prevented the kind of engagement that we were to go forward with. So in a certain sense, we're still opening the doors and we're still inviting life in to, you know, religious life at its best some 20 years later. I'm speaking with Paul Gorman, the executive director of the National Religious Partnership on the Environment, and we'll come back to uh, some of uh, the origins of Paul's uh, interest in these issues in the second hour of this two-part uh, conversation with Paul. Paul, let's go forward now uh, to what the religious partnership accomplished uh, because uh, in the nonprofit and foundation community, uh, this is really considered one of the, the great success stories of environmental philanthropy. There was this uh, sense among some of the leading foundations in the country that it was essential to bring the uh, religious community uh, into engagement with uh, the environment and particularly climate change. There was a quite substantial investment made in asking you to do that. So take us through the the, the sort of main developments uh, of the partnership and really leading up to this most uh, recent statement of yeah. uh, Benedict's. Well, um, it took quite a, uh, a, a quite substantial amount of seduction and spin to release the quite substantial amount of investment from the secular philanthropic community. Right. Um, which is only to say that it was, I mean, this is one of the great accomplishments of philanthropy, certainly with respect to religious life, that in some real sense, secular philanthropy was critical for the awakening and thrust of religious life on environment. It's a I'm content for that to be a footnote for the time being, because there was always this kind of nervousness about, you know, 
what does it mean to accept money from foundations, or what does it mean to foundations to give money to religion and First Amendment? But but that is really a sideshow. I mean, I it it came between 1991 and 1993. I set about an inquiry of senior religious leaders with the significant help after a year or so of Al Gore on the one hand and Carl Sagan on the other, um, especially Gore, who himself was writing at that time, and I was helping with him in some chapters, Earth in the Balance, which had a strong statement about the spiritual dimensions of this crisis. And um, in the course of those two years, um, it became clear and it became important that this was not to be kind of enlisting the religious community, kind of rent a constituency, you know, um, getting colorful clergy at press conferences and photo ops and make sure if it's a rabbi, he's got a beard or a yarmulke, or, you know, we, we don't want any ordinary rabbi. And Which had been a tradition of environmental advocacy. That's right. I mean, they, you, you know, you, you can have a, a press doctor. conference and you're going to find somebody whose right. first name is Rev or Rabbi right. Right. and um, make sure they don't say anything. We'll be right back after a short break. us very clearly that this had to be about the awakening or recovery of religious life um, for which, you know, environment kind of was calling us back to what it meant to be religious. It was the religious in the National Religious Partnership for the Environment that was the key word which meant, you know, we were not going to be kind of shock troops for the embattled, um, you know, green movement, but to enact a distinctively religious response to these various crises in God's creation at the hands of God's children, and that we really needed to be about what it must mean, you know, now and henceforth to be religious in response to this crisis of creation. So that in 1993, we very consciously set about what was to be a really long-term project, which was certainly not to change the character of, of religion, but to infuse it and animate it with what, after all, if you read Genesis, are the first words of the book that everyone takes pretty seriously, so they say. And that meant just to take it through the early years, um, helping to discover and discern and to distribute the biblical and scriptural and uh, theological rationales for what it meant to, you know, to take creation seriously. Um, You have to, we had to establish the small o orthodoxy of this for it to be really embraced by the institutions of religion and not just kind of the prophetic minority. Let's just take a moment and go over the main partners. There was the Catholic Conference, there was the National Council of Churches, the Coalition on Environment and Justice, which is a Jewish coalition, 
and the Evangelical Environmental Network. Yeah, it was the partners in the partnership, you know, as, as Michael says, the U.S. Catholic Conference National Council. It really is the Judeo-Christian, mainstream Judeo-Christian organizational bodies of the United States. The Abrahamic Community. The Abrahamic, that's right. Um, and Including the Eastern Orthodox. Uh, yeah, but people say, what about Islam and Buddhism and so forth? And right, that's, that's true. It doesn't There's an answer right. to that which is kind of bureaucratic. I mean, it was mm-hmm. very useful to be able to start with the shared biblical tradition. Um, there were existing close relationships, sort of, between... Catholic and Jewish and Evangelical and Protestant groups. It was a good way to start, and as this thing kind of rippled through, obviously there are many other faith groups and wisdom traditions that have engaged, but that's what we started. Right. And so I think the first point was to say, look, um, we because we want this to be about the future of religious life, and because what we had to contribute would be religion at its best, and that's a, that would be a good topic for our conversation. What is religion at its best? So to establish the theological and moral principles, to begin to distribute materials to congregations, to generate materials for sermons, to begin to encourage, you know, activism on issues and congregational, um, you know, projects around the country, to make the link between social justice and environment, which was no small challenge and imperative, and basically, I mean, in my, my, in my minstrel mind, Michael, um, this was always an irresistible call, and that if people really heard that religion has something to do with environment, spirituality has something to do with, you know, nature, this is so intuitively fundamental for people. I mean, not least were people crying at the cathedral because they saw this connection being manifested, you know, again. Um, So that I always felt that we were really encouraging an irreversible, irresistible kind of awakening. Um, And how it has played out programmatically over the years, you know, there is as diverse as faith groups, you know, we, we colorfully, we, there, there was the evangelical What Would Jesus Drive campaign, and right. that got a lot of attention. And in the Jewish community, there was famously out in California, in Northern California, the Redwood Rabbis, who, um, you know, held services in the great, in the great red, Redwood forests of your home county, Michael. Right. And so, you know... um, What was the sequence? Uh, Can you in any sense say whether there was one of these participating groups that early on led the way or some individual, or was it sort of a gradual awakening in all of them at the same time? Yeah, it's a wonderful question. Um, You know, a comprehensive environmentalism where you would lose the E-word because we would be talking about so much more than quotes-unquote environmentalism, and for some people that's sustainability and so forth. But that if you view this less or 
to be sure, as a cause for social and political action, and clearly we have to do that most urgently. But if you view it as well as a set of values, as a perspective, uh, as a way of engaging life, then the challenge is to integrate these values into all the disciplines and professions of human civilization. The goal is to have environmentally, we, we don't like the word green um, or purple, um, but that's just uh, a joke. But I mean, what we call green, um, I mean, I had to deal with headlines that like clergy turns green, right. you know, um, which I would have liked to have seen more of in those days. But, but, but the goal is to have hospitals when you work in this area and labor unions and, you know, architects and uh, engineers, all of us integrating these values. So what that meant for the religious community and what, what really my deep um, direction, maybe from St. Francis, um, strategy in any case, was to look for that within each of the traditions that had its own natural disposition to this kind of awakening. And it wasn't a matter of encouraging, you know, the lowest common denomination, right, or creating some kind of interfaith entity that was kind of low, you know, kind of just throwing things together. But what is it in the evangelical culture or Catholic culture that was ready to come further forward on this? And in fact, the, the ethos of this partnership, even I suppose in our bylaws, which is a good one for everybody, what were the words, to be ourselves, comma, together. Yes. Um, so everyone kind of moved forward in their own way. But for example, going back to the Eastern Orthodox, uh, what is the word for him, the, the prelate? Or is that um, the, or? You can call him um, your all-holiness your if all you're holiness. talking to him, or his right. all-holiness if right. you're talking to me. Right. His all-holiness, the Eastern Orthodox. Would you like to talk to him? Because he's, he's just down the hall. Sorry. Uh, is, are you seriously? No. no, no. <laughs> okay. I thought it was time for some laughter for all these poor people who are being inflicted by Well, but Paul, the point is that, that uh, he might be down the hall from you, so Al Gore might be down the hall from you, so uh, <laughs> I would have taken you up on that. Okay. Uh, but uh, his All Holiness, the Eastern Orthodox prelate, uh, he, he has, has famously engaged with the environment as an issue. Was he uh, involved early on in the history of, of this? Was, was uh, the Greek Orthodox community yeah. one of the early adopters among these uh, communities? I think the most important thing to understand here mm -hmm. is that, you know, movements or awakenings um, happen in many places, in many ways, quite independent of the superstructure, you know, of hierarchies, leaders, personalities, influential beings. Or if they don't, they're not prophetic awakenings. 
Right. They're another leader's initiative. Right. And there have been, you know, most leadership initiatives in the religious community these days are making more trouble than, than they are making more help. Uh, but, so I really think that the way it seemed to be happening, certainly happened to me, um, was that different people were catching this, hearing this tune, you know, um, experiencing this kind of viral grace, there's a phrase, um, in their own ways. So an evangelical pastor in Waco, Texas, all of a sudden um, reads Genesis through the context of environmentalism and gives sermons about it, or activists in inner churches make the connection between environment, asthma, and, um, you know, Sinai, um, you know? And so it's, it's most appropriate to describe it as an awakening. Um, and then institutions come in because they're obviously important, but that was my experience, you know? And the same, by the way, should be said, of, you know, in, in a way of all, quote-unquote, environmentalism. Isn't it true? I mean... People come to it through so many doors, and isn't that exactly what you've been doing in your work? Well, I agree with you that, that as you know, I've been working uh, in the health community, uh, helping the health uh, sectors awaken to uh, the environment as an issue, and very much uh, in our work, uh, using your work with the National Religious Partnership on the Environment as our model. Um, uh, and in fact, the foundation community that has supported us really sort of saw the National Religious Partnership on the Environment and its work as the model that could uh, possibly uh, be recreated in its own form in the healthcare community. But what has struck me as I thought about this conversation with you, uh, Paul Garman, the executive director of the National Religious Partnership. The You're family. so good with your station. Right? Uh, <laughs> well, I'm learning from uh, somebody who did this for 28 years, didn't you? He's down the hall WBAI? With the right. You did it. You did these uh, conversations for 28 years at WBAI uh, in in New York. So I'm I'm taking lessons. Um, the point being that as I thought about this conversation and I, I thought about Pope Benedict's statement and, and I realized that uh, there is a way in which you talked about what does it really mean to be religious. There is a way in which um, religion gives us permission to experience and evoke in ourselves and others the deepest level of our awakening to life itself and to creation. And that therefore the power of the religious community coming to the environmental issues is not simply uh, that this is such a tremendous constituency politically and so vital to collective uh, institutional progress, but that it, it represents an awakening of the human soul in our time uh, to, uh, to the crisis of uh, life that goes far beyond climate change or far beyond any of the specifics. And it's to the meeting place of health, the environment, justice, and all these other issues. So um, 
and I I know from from our friendship over many years that um, that these are are issues and questions that you share. Yeah. Well, it's nice to hear your own description of your own journey, and those of you who are listening this to this program should listen to every program afterwards because this guy is great and wise. <laughs> um, yeah, I. I'm mindful at this live in this moment that many of you all listening might be saying, yeah, yeah, this is great, but what have you done for us lately? Which is to say, how is the religious community or organized religion making any impact on policy and politics and solutions? And we will come to that. There's an answer to that. But just to acknowledge that that question has to be in everyone's minds and certainly is in ours but um so i really if i hear your point michael it's you know i was saying that this set of values has to come alive in various disciplines and vocations in their own way as a first point and to be ourselves together and this gives incredible talk about permission this gives incredible incentive and permission for everyone, everyone listening now, who to engage these deep values, as so many of you probably are, in your own settings, your own situations, your own workplaces, and your own tables, you know, and so on. So that's one point. Um, another point, if we're talking about social change, a real change, is um, how do you integrate this very new kind of world historical problem of environment. Um, how do you get that into the agendas of great social institutions that haven't really engaged it, whether it's a hospital or a, or a you know, or a synagogue? Um, that's, so in a way, you know, you're trying to bring a new world historical challenge into the most ancient traditions and certainly the most ancient way of how human beings relate to the universe, um, that's a tall order. Another order is how do you address the basic values that have gotten us into the pickle that we're in now? I mean, we all understand that environmental degradation is not just a problem you know, of, the, of uh, Newt Gingrich or, uh, or any of these politicians. Um, but it's something very deep inside of human understanding of, of human place and purpose in the greater web of life. You have to go through the institutions that are designed to address those, those problems, and we've sought to do that. And then at some level, you have to kind of get this out of partisanship and this... Um, you know, in a, in a raw kind of political way in this country, how do you get this beyond the Democratic Party or the wing of the Democratic Party? So it's something that, you know, is so compelling that everybody has to address it. And there you work with more conservative Christians as we do. So the point is only that, the, that we have had to move forward in many ways at different levels simultaneously. Plus, everybody's doing what they want to do anyway, so it's not as if anyone's calling the shots. Right. Paul Gorman, in 2002, you were interviewed in E! Magazine, the environmental magazine, and uh, 
you were asked whether you saw this uh, awakening in religious life as uh, an awakening of all mankind. And, 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 um, and it raises a really interesting historical question as to whether uh, in this uh, incredible crisis that we're now in, factually, scientifically, with the ice caps melting, the polar bears going extinct, the, you know, Africa ravaged, uh, uh, the seas rising, uh, just the whole crisis of health, environment, justice, peace, and so forth. Whether there is uh, what you referred to in that uh, interview in 2002 as uh, the scriptural teaching of signs of the times in which uh, there's a historical moment when a generation is called to respond to God under very particular conditions. And I wonder whether you sense that there is the possibility of an awakening of the human spirit at a level that would authentically enable us to respond at the scale that is required to the global crisis. Um, we have a major radio moment here, everyone, um, because the guest is about to turn the tables and say, I don't know, what do you think? <laughs> and, I, and I say it, what do you think? I don't know the answer. I, uh, you know, my favorite response to that is Václav Havel's distinction between optimism and hope. And Havel, the great Czech statesman and playwright, said that optimism is the belief that everything is going to go right. And that hope, by contrast, is, is a deep orientation of the human soul that can be held in the darkest of times. So my response to that would be, it's difficult to be optimistic about whether there can be this level of awakening, but it's quite essential to be hopeful about it in order to live fully and in an engaged way in the middle of this crisis. Yeah, I, I, that's a wonderful answer. I mean, I, I would actually make the case for optimism, at least in this way. Um, if, we, if we look at this constellation or this awakening or stirring or development, more than a movement, clearly, um, from a larger... Um, panorama, you know, of human history and change. What has happened in the last only, I would say, the last 30 years in the course of a generation is, is there's been, whatever the word, an awakening, engagement, passion, commitment of across civilizations, across humankind, to the condition of our, you know, the greater web of life in which, in which we discover ourselves all of a sudden to be embedded. And that's an incredible thing to have happen in one generation, because it is of comparable significance, isn't it, to um, what, the Renaissance, you know, or the Enlightenment, um, or other great movements of human civilization. So from the standpoint of the speed with which this has touched us and we've responded, it's more than optimistic in a way. It, it really is a certain amount of pride 
because it's or, or wonder, you know, humility that it has happened and it has happened. You know, it really it's important for us to know that it has happened. Um, what what uh, what are its prospects? Are depends on how much time we've got left or whether we go to a question like that, Michael. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I think I would. What I would want to say is that um, uh, it it's so fundamental. We have seven minutes left, Paul. For you, seven minutes, Paul. Right. I mean, I don't want to make for neat, neat answers, but I mean, I, I suppose for the symmetry of this conversation, you know, the doors have opened, um, and not only has life walk come in, but we've gone out. That is to say, you know, we've moved out of our restricted kinds of worldviews and disciplines and myopia um, to say, oh my God, right? either reverently or with incredible alarm religiously. That, that's just huge. And in that sense, I think this is irreversible. Um, and, you know, and we are all blessed by that. We the business blessed. at hand and what we got to do and how we speak truth to power. Mm-hmm. Big issues. In the last uh, five minutes, Paul, um, coming back to the the question you raised earlier, uh, the sort of what have you done for me lately question about the National Religious Partnership for the Environment and your work there uh, uh, since 1991-93. What do you see as the the, uh, major accomplishments of the partnership in legislative, in institutional terms? What what has moved uh, because of the work of the partnership? Yeah, I mean, one good answer is nothing. Um, and that, the reason for that answer would be um, that legislation as such has not been the target of our efforts, or um, we've not been strong enough, you know, be, to have that kind of impact. I mean, if the faith community gets exercised about big issues like, you know, abortion or immigration or something, they, they can have an impact. But I would, I would actually answer that in the present tense. This afternoon, I guess going on now, some of our representatives are meeting in Washington with staff members of the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee to basically to say that the climate legislation that that committee is about to bring before the Senate, you know, in the next month or so, if there aren't strong provisions to assure that the impacts of global warming on the poor and vulnerable all around the earth, and if the, not just the impacts, but the proposed remedies, if they do not first and foremost Um, take care of the least of these, those most vulnerable, those least responsible for this condition, then uh, we're going to fight seriously. And um, you're you're not going to have the the united religious community supporting any climate legislation 
that doesn't have sufficient provisions. And this is a fight because poverty is not the highest priority of environmentalists, much less business, much less the United States Congress. Um, now, that's a very nitty-gritty fight, and as I said, there, there are people right now negotiating language, and that's pretty close in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that represents the fruition of, um, you know, of a lot of preparatory work. And um, that's not just a piece of legislation. I think, I think the, uh, we're going to be fighting on that. And then with that, I would have to say that even to get to this climate uh, legislation, that the engagement of, you know, most visibly the evangelical community, but conservative religious people, have helped to change the political equation so that the climate action squad is more than, you know, greens and scientists and liberals, but really cuts across society. I've been talking with Paul Gorman, the executive director of the National Religious Partnership on the Environment. Paul will be back with me in the next hour to talk further about the origins of his interest in um, uh, religion and the environment and justice uh, in his own life, and we'll explore his friendship with Al Gore, uh, the book he wrote with Ram Dass, and many other uh, questions uh, of great interest to us. Paul, thank you for being with us in yeah, the Yeah, Michael, and, and all of you who were there, you know, look within and rejoice. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal. Please visit our website, where you can subscribe to our podcast and find further information about our guests and programs. Our website is www.commonweal.org slash new hyphen school. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. Or you can go to www.commonweal.org and click on the new school and get to our program that way. Thank you for joining us at the new school.